0: Greetings and salutations, you're listening to This Ends at Prom, a
1: podcast where I,
0: teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife...
1: Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy.
0: Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood?
1: Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses or your perspective?
0: Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen?
1: Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to...
0: This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production.
2: I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I...
0: You want the rest of that, you have to listen to the entire episode.
1: (laughs) Or they'll just fast forward, but. That's true, too.
0: Like, some people probably will, like, scrub to the end and then come back and our analytics are gonna be a
1: shit show i don't care about the analytics (laughs) i don't see that part i like to think that people are here for us and not just the song and dance i would hope so because
0: otherwise (laughs) like they're getting a very boring show because we only song and dance like twice a year
1: it's true mostly you
0: (laughs) yeah very much true well hi friends welcome back prom party it is the end of may musical month and we we had to go out with a bang
1: Yeah, Parting is such sweet sorrow, but we're getting a twofer, which one of them is not actually a musical. It's just a dance movie with lots of music, but that's fine. The other one is very musical. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Friends, today we are doing a double header of 1988's Hairspray from John Waters and the 2007 movie musical version of Hairspray based on the Broadway show that is based on John Waters' original film. You might be wondering why we're doing the double feature, and pretty much it's because we're going to have the same talking points, so it feels silly to separate them into two episodes. Yeah,
1: we want to do both, but why would we be redundant?
0: Right, exactly. And friends, we are not alone this week. We are joined by an absolutely incredible voice in film the just absolutely magnificent Kate Hagen.
3: Oh. Hi, Kate. Oh, you guys, that was so nice. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Kate, typically I give people, like, a really dazzling introduction where I tell the world, like, what you do. But you just got, like, a very impressive uh, promotion, and I am not super familiar with what this new role for you entails. So if you could, please tell the listeners what it is you do, and why they should be listening to you.
3: Hello, I'm Kate Hagan. I am a writer living in Los Angeles. I also work for The Blacklist, where I have been working... the company for about eight years and I recently got promoted to SVP Senior Vice President along with my colleague Megan Halpern I am co-running our film and television slate dealing with all parts of blacklist business everything from the annual blacklist that comes out in December to the day-to-day operations of the website to the myriad partnerships programs labs and opportunities we have for writers on the website Um, I've also been lucky to do some writing as i've been working for the blacklist which i've written about everything from feminism and horror films to the last great video store search to the most recent piece i wrote about the role of fat girls in film past and present um also you may have seen me i am beating the drum for there's not enough sex in movies anymore and i've written about that as well for playboy um so you might see me on twitter being very obnoxious about that one of these days but yeah super stoked to be here and very excited to talk about a really pivotal and key film in my early life
0: Oh, beautiful. I mean, I could have just been like, this is Kate. She's a woman after my own heart. And that would have surmised everything. Because everything you do is stuff that I love and champion. And I'm just very happy to know you because I feel a lot less alone in this world.
3: Oh, We got to do it for the fat girls, BJ. Man, like. For real. <laughs>
0: So, all right, Hairspray. I'm going to go around the room here. Harmony, what is your exposure, knowledge, anything with Hairspray just in general?
1: Uh, I watched a lot of musicals in the 2000s as a kid who likes theatrical music but doesn't actually like that many musicals. So all of the movie adaptations of musicals, was very good for me, so I actually saw the musical version of Hairspray first. Mm-hmm. Um, watched it a, a fair amount, and then only after that did I go back and watch the original. Uh, I may have illegally downloaded it off of LimeWire, which is also how I saw Pink Flamingos for the first time. But I'm way more familiar with the musical just because of like the the divide in eras and when I would have been exposed to it. Okay.
0: Okay. And Kate, how about you?
3: Yeah. I mean, sort of typical like 90s suburban experience. I was aware that there was a John Waters hairspray and that it was one of the only John Waters movies I would be allowed to watch as a child. Um, And I think my first exposure to Ricky Lake was actually via her talk show and via Mrs. Winterborn. But even as a kid, I was like, oh, she's like the only fat actress who like books roles and like engages with her body in those roles. So. So I think I watched it just like on, on like a Saturday afternoon and was immediately like, oh my God, Tracy Turnblad is everything I've ever needed. Um, <laughs> but I did not see the musical version of Hairspray until I watched the movie version just last night. So it is very fresh in my mind
1: really. That was also why
0: I wanted to chat with you because once I found that out about you, I was like oh, this is going to be amazing. It was (laughs) quite
3: a time, guys. I was a junior in high school when the movie musical came out and I remember a lot of friends being very interested in it and it just I'm not the biggest musicals person in the world generally and I feel like at the time I had that sort of like, well, it's not going to be as good as the John Waters movie, which we will get into shortly. Um, But yeah, (laughs) it was quite an experience seeing Hairspray the musical for the very first time in 2022.
0: I love this so much. I come from a, like a hybrid world, I guess I could describe it. Um, So I am an insufferable theater kid. This is not a secret to anyone who knows me,
1: especially if you've been following this month.
0: Yeah, for real. (laughs) I'm very annoying about it. I'm so sorry. Um, But when Hairspray the Broadway show came out, it was, I think 2002, 2003. And I kind of became obsessed with it because as somebody who was taking voice lessons and doing theater, every single teacher I had suddenly was like, wow, do you hear about this new show, Hairspray? The lead is a fat girl who can belt and dance. And I was like, what? This is amazing. And so my mom... And her infinite wisdom bought me this like hardcover, like coffee table book that they were selling um, with like the Broadway production. I think she got it on eBay because I surely never went to New York to see it. And it was like the making of the script and the libretto was in there. There were pictures of the costumes. Uh, they showed like the the transition of Harvey Firestein to turn into Edna. And it was just big and vibrant and colorful. And I then started listening to the music and I was really, really into it. And then I had a teacher who told me, oh, well, you know, this is based on a John Waters movie. Those who listen to the show know that my parents let me watch literally anything that I wanted as a child. I had no limitations, which meant I had already seen Female Trouble at this point. And I'm like 12. (laughs) So I was like, oh, John Waters, I like him. Went to the video store, rented Hairspray, watched it. Fell in love with it. And then, of course, was like very excited because a lot of the lines that exist in the John Waters movie are also like songs in the musical version. Mm -hmm. So I was able to like put these pieces together and I thought that it was really cool. So for a very long period of time, Tracy Turnblad and Hairspray was like my shit. Like that was everything to me. I held it so sacred. And then I got older and then I played Tracy Turnblad over and over and over again to the point where counting cabarets and benefit concerts, I have played Tracy Turnblad seven times in my life. That is excessive. Um, <laughs> that is way too many times for any one person to play a single role unless you're like Sarah Brightman and you're playing Christine Dive. <laughs> like no, like I should not be doing this, but I you know as I got older, I started real like having like a very complicated relationship with Tracy, Because when you walk into an, uh, an audition and the director looks at you and goes, God, you'd make a hell of a Tracy Turnblad, and that's the thing you hear over and over again, you start to get a little bitter about that. Um, because you realize, oh, this is the only character a lot of people can ever see me as because our vision for fat actresses is so limiting, especially in theater. Like, it's pretty bad in film. It is way worse in theater. And um, so I I now have a very complicated relationship. I think I'm coming around on her a bit more.
1: Since Um, you've stepped away from musical theater for a while?
0: Yeah, very, very much so. But I saw the movie around the same time as I discovered the musical. So then years later... When the movie musical came out, um, at this point I had played Tracy twice, um, (laughs) once in a full production and once in like a cabaret performance, and um, I had a lot of feelings about the movie, and I do believe that I've come around a little bit more on the movie, uh, because I initially was really, really unhappy about it, and we'll get to the reasons why later.
1: Like the musical movie? Yes. Okay.
0: Yes, yes. Um, that's, uh, That's very much where I come from in terms of hairspray.
1: So, so we're coming at this from all different angles. We <laughs> huh? sure
3: are. I love
0: it. <laughs> we're painting a complex picture here of Baltimore. Um, but before we dive in any deeper, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the Morning Announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag ThisEndsAtProm at prom or at ThisEndsAtProm. at prom. This announcement is for our listeners back home in Cleveland, Ohio. Mix Juneteenth, a black and queer liberation celebration, is back. Taking place on Saturday, June 18th from noon to 6 p.m. at Black Punks Press. 4701 Perkins Avenue, Cleveland, Ohio. Mixed Juneteenth will feature live music, drag performances from local talent, art, free community, and harm reduction resources, local vendors, food, and educational workshops. For those that don't know, Juneteenth is a holiday for reverence, remembrance, and celebration. Through intentional planning and organizing, Mixed Juneteenth will capture the spirit of Juneteenth holiday by providing a liberatory space that adheres to a black, queer, feminist praxis that centers abolition, community, solidarity with all oppressed communities, and anti-bigotry. Mixed Juneteenth is a space that explicitly promotes an environment of respect, civility, and liberation that is free of harassment and police presence. Mixed Juneteenth is a free event with a suggested donation of $7 and $10 for non-black individuals. Pay up. No one will be turned away for inability to pay, though. Proceeds will be used to compensate performers and offset the cost of the event. Tickets can be reserved at HTTPS colon backslash backslash linktree slash Mixed Juneteenth. And remember, linktree is L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E. Backslash mix Juneteenth. All right, so Harmony, contextually, where are the hairspray movies existing? What world are they coming out in?
1: Uh okay, so Hairspray 88 comes out in a pretty bummer year. In terms of like actual legacy things for teen films because it's all a bunch of Brad Pack stuff. I'm going to be real with you. I don't think John Waters gave a shit about uh, Matthew Broderick being in Biloxi Blues. So where Hairspray stacks up with its peers truly does not matter.
0: That's a very good point. Especially
1: because it really wouldn't catch on in popularity for years until like video rentals in the 90s. And looking at Hairspray like the movie musical... One thing that I think is worth noting is that uh, this movie did very well. It made, like, $200 million. It's, by my math, the fifth highest grossing musical of that decade. And of the, like, adaptations of Broadway musicals of its contemporaries, uh, it's the only one about teens, like, starring teens, that is teen-oriented, unlike uh, Enchanted or any of the high school musical movies. Those are, like... Significantly more younger adolescents. That's well, like the yeah. target demographic. Yeah, High
0: School Musical movies are about high schoolers, but twelve-year-olds are
1: the target audience, correct? <laughs> and other ones where you have adaptations of like Dreamgirls or The Producers or Mama Mia, uh, Chicago, any of the other shows that are coming to the big screen at this time. Those are about adults. Yeah, Hairspray hits a really specific point of being for teens. And dealing with really big subjects while still being extremely Broadway. And I think that that's fascinating.
0: That is a really good point to make uh, when you look at where it kind of falls. I mean, Rent, kind of, in my opinion, like, those are dealing with adult themes, but teenagers are the ones that really gravitate towards that. They're also, like, 30. Yeah, but they are a bit older. I think this is, like, the mature teen movie, whereas Hairspray is very much an all-ages kind of show Mm -hmm. because... While it does deal with really big themes, it does so from this very idealized lens. There's a lot of
1: smiling.
3: <laughs> very much so.
1: Like, oh, Tracy is just pure optimism and smiles this
3: whole time. <laughs> just like Spring Awakening, right, guys? Totally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, God, Spring Awakening. Oh, Lord. Um, so for, for those that don't know... Um, Something that I think is really important to add to this context of both the movie and the movie musical and the Broadway show and everything is that the Corny Collins show is based on a real thing. It's based on the Buddy Dean show, which was a show that John Waters grew up watching, and the rules were very similar to what we see in the show, and John Waters has said on multiple occasions that... Hairspray is not supposed to be an authentic look at what happened with the Buddy Dean show. It's supposed to be like the magical fantasy world that should have happened. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is when they did try to integrate the Buddy Dean show, it got canceled. People like made bomb threats and protested and it was not a good thing. Um, So Hairspray was his sort of answer of like, this is what should have happened. Like Mm -hmm. we should have had integration and this is how things should have been. So With that in mind, it's very important to know that, like, John Waters is not trying to make a, like, staunchly, like, political statement or a reflection of what was really going on in this time period. This is a fantasy. And Mm -hmm. it's very important that we remember that it's a fantasy because I think sometimes a lot of the criticisms that are hurled at this movie are because people are upset that it's not based in reality. Like, it is, but it isn't.
1: And now, broadcast live in front of a live studio audience for the first time from the certified Up to Code WYGT studio. It's the Corny Collins Miss Hairspray Spectacular. He's Corny. Brought to you by Ultra Crunch Hairspray.
2: What gives a girl power and punch? Is it charm? Is it poise? No, it's hairspray. What gets a gal? Asked out to lunch, is it brains, is it dough? No, it's hair spray. If you take a ride with no can at your side, then your flip will be gone with the wind. But if you spray it and lock it, you can take off in a rocket. And in outer space, each hair will be in place.
0: All right, let's, whew, let's dive in because I know we're going to go some places. Sure. So Kate, I'm going to start with you. Why was Tracy Turnblad like such a formative character for you?
3: Oh, gosh. I mean, it's hard to explain the experience of growing up in the 90s if you weren't there. I know all you Gen Z listeners are like, all right, another cranky ass millennial. But (laughs) I just we live in a time where we're seeing all sorts of bodies in all sorts of presentations across social media and I just want younger listeners to understand that, like, it has not always been that way. It has taken time and it has taken progress. I, growing up, I could point to a handful of a very short list of women and people in femme bodies who felt like they represented me at all. I, you know, it was like, oh, it's Ricky Lake. It's Mia Tyler is like the one plus size runway model in the world. It's Emmy on the E Channel. And that's really about it, especially on the younger end of things. Obviously, there are folks like Kathy Bates who have been carrying the torch for many years before. But growing up in the 90s, seeing any kind of fat woman presented in any kind of positive context was extremely rare. Um, When it did happen, it felt almost like, uh, like you were being punked, like a sort of like, wait, are you sure? Like, are you sure Ricky Lake is going to get to kiss Craig Sheffer at the end of Baby Cakes and they get to, like, go off on their own and, like, nothing bad is going to happen? So it's like (laughs) that waiting for the other shoe to drop kind of thing, even when you're, like, enjoying something. And I feel like that was my experience with Hairspray the first time I watched it, where I was like – Okay, but isn't something bad going to happen to Tracy? Like, isn't she going to face some kind of consequences? Like, she's so bubbly and she's so positive and she's attracting this cute boy and she's doing the right thing when it comes to civil rights. Like, isn't she going to isn't she going to face some kind of judgment or consequences because she's unapologetically fat while doing this? Um, so it was really interesting to like get to the end of Hairspray and just feel elated and feel like I had really seen a sort of aspirational character who actually looked like me. Something I've always appreciated about Ricky Lake too is she's a little bit more on the petite stature side, repping all of us short fat girls out there. Um, but yeah, I feel like, you know, I didn't have quite the like, you know, Tracy Turnblad is number one for me, she's it, but it was just like... It felt like one of those few life rafts in a decade where a lot of fat people felt very marooned in terms of representation and even positive representation crumbs of it. It just felt like a miracle to to see somebody so beautiful and like, you know, All of the incredible dancing she does in the film, the hefty hideaway dresses she gets to wear. Like, she's a real sort of like aspirational, exciting character that you want to be. And there was just basically nobody else uh, for Fat Women during that time that were that exciting and that were, you know, just sort of like that compelling to watch and be excited by the possibilities for your own life while remaining fat, which was such a novel concept at that time. It's like, wait a minute, I don't have to lose weight for my life to begin? What? Are you sure? That's not what's been told to me.
0: (laughs) No, I feel very similarly. And I love that you mentioned Mia Tyler because I talk about Mia Tyler all the time with other millennials. And they're all like, don't you mean Liv Tyler? And I'm like, no, 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 her fat sister. Like, I cut out all of her Torrid spreads and, (laughs) stuck them on my wall because I couldn't believe that she existed. Like, I needed her so badly. Um, And I just love that, like, there's, like, a – you're right. There was only a handful of, like, fat femmes that you could kind of point to throughout the 90s and, honestly, into the, like, into the 2000s, like, a lot of my formative, like, understanding of like fat women in media outside of films that had come before and outside of John Waters films that's a big reason why I love him so much like I was more familiar with characters in fat suits than I was actual fat characters. Yeah, and yeah. That's an issue.
3: <laughs> and even like you know, I had I think I saw Crybaby around the same time. And Ricky Lake is so hot in Crybaby too. And you're like, oh my god, she's like she gets to do it again. This wasn't just like a one off thing with John Waters. And then of course she mm-hmm. shows back up in Serial Mom and, and other John Waters titles. But and of course you know to say nothing of the the otherworldly most wonderful presence of divine. Uh, John Waters is mm-hmm. like one of his top muses um, but yeah it just felt like such a such a breath of fresh air to be really cliche about it you're like oh look what's possible guys
0: yeah no I'm, I'm right there with you and I think that it's really important that whenever we talk about I guess film history in general like John Waters really deserves flowers for a multitude of reasons but one of them being with how prominently he featured fat women and not mm-hmm. as you know the butt of jokes but as like these glorious Beings. Obviously, we have divine, but then you also have like Edith Massey, who is an elderly, fat woman missing teeth, and yet he's like, "I'm putting you in full body spandex with your titties out," and she (laughs) owned the shit out of it, which is incredible. Like, and no, like so many people look at that and they thought like he was being funny or he was being like edgy, and he's like, "No, I just find this to be beautiful, and it's weird that you don't," and that is something that's always like very much resonated with me to the point where like. I always tell people, um, this is a very dumb joke, but for those who do not know, uh, when Harmony and I made our Save the Dates, uh, they are an an illustration of us at the drive-in, and the movie that we're watching at the drive-in is Serial Mom, because it's the first movie we ever watched together, Mm -hmm. and I have a picture of Ricky Lake in Serial Mom saved in my phone where she's just like looking longingly at, I think it's she's looking at the cops in the scene in particular and I always say like you know find somebody who looks at you at the same level of adoration as Ricky Lake with literally any tertiary male character in Serial Mom because <laughs> she's allowed to like be lusty and like love people and that was so mind-blowing for me as a kid so then getting to see her in Hairspray because I saw Serial Mom first Serial Mom was like one of my favorite movies growing up because again my parents let me do what I want and seeing where she came from and then, like, how she got to evolve was really formative for me as well because you're right. Like, we really didn't have anything. <laughs> like, we were we were deserted. There was nothing. There was
3: no anything. <laughs> it was dire, guys. Like, I know it may seem wild to think about now, and like, you know, we're living in very different times. Like, I can open my Instagram feed and see all kinds of bodies in bikinis and in tasteful nudes and all sorts of, like, different presentation styles, but there was nobody in the 90s. Like, we were we were really, really clamoring for the crumbs that we were getting, and it makes characters like Ricky Lake in the John Waters oof feel especially potent and I think a lot of us have that like really bone deep like special relationship with her because of that to this day
1: see and this is so uh, like I've heard this conversation from BJ we've had this a lot of times I love hearing this conversation as like a fly on the wall for all of this because I mean I don't know if listeners know this but like I was a uh, a chubby kid growing up I was I I was husky as as my mother would refer to it yeah that was
0: the word that like fat little boys got you got to be husky
1: yeah I got to be husky in like my bugle boys or my corduroys.
0: And I do want to confirm as well, because I know a lot of people love the fact that Harmony and I are so oppositely shaped and sized in the sense that you're so tall and like slender. But I am confirming to you all, friends, without having to show photographic evidence, which would require misgendering, and that's not cool. Uh, no, Harmony was a, a little fat boy, and it was just so cute. Like, uh, she-
1: I mean, cute's <laughs> one word for it. One of the words that we, well, one of the pictures that we have is, One from me on swim team, and I'm maybe like 10 years old, and I'm wearing a Speedo, and I'm like hunched over and eating, and it's like a side profile. It's the the meanest picture. Why would a parent take that photo of their child? (laughs) It is so mean, and also it's really funny for me to look at now. You've got
0: like popsicle stained mouth and everything. It's bad.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. But it's really fascinating to hear this because you did have representation for like fat little boys in the 90s. Like, we did, it was a lot of slender people in the 90s, especially. But, fat little boys, you gotta be like the chubby kid on a sports team with like a smart mouth, or you gotta be like the Josh Peck type where you are the butt of the joke and they're gonna insert fart sounds in post. (laughs) Like, Those were your options for teen boys. So I'm like, I feel like I would have absolutely gravitated towards Ricky Lake if I had like seen this at a younger age or if, you know, I was born cis. Um, But just like John Waters takes fat women and he makes them cool. Mm -hmm. He makes them awesome. Like I love seeing all of the characters that exist in like Desperate Living and they're so fucking cool. Mm -hmm. And I think Ricky Lake is awesome in this because she's so smooth and confident and you also get that to like an equal extent with Nikki Blonsky in the musical where she is so good and I asked BJ where did this girl come from and what BJ tells me is that they had to do like a nationwide search which is cool to get like the role right but also that means they just don't have like uh, like, a checklist uh, or, or any kind of, like, list to pull There's from no for fat little girls from. who can sing and dance. No,
0: and they did the same thing for the Hairspray Live performance is they found somebody on a nationwide search, and they always position it as, like, we're going to find, like, this the underseen person and it's going to be this great big deal. And I'm like, I'm glad that your marketing department has positioned this to look like you're doing something really cool. But all this is, is you telling on yourselves and saying, we don't know uh, enough fat actresses that we can just pull somebody Mm -hmm. from. And not only that, we do not have somebody that is a bankable enough name. So now we have to do this entire fucking circus act to make it look like we're doing something important and interesting. Mm -hmm. That's going to get people to watch because Hollywood refuses to make fat stars, especially teenagers. I'm so
3: glad to hear you say that, BJ, because the financial piece is so real. Like even when these folks are incredibly talented and like can do the job in in spades, like it becomes this question of like, "Mm, but they don't have any international finance and they're not a known quantity, so we can't make a movie with them. And as you say, then we never meant any fat stars. It's horrifying.
0: Yeah, it's really embarrassing when I think about, like, Marissa Jarrett Winnicore, who played Tracy on Broadway. She originated the role. Most people, like, don't have any idea who she is. And it's like, she's a Tony-nominated performer. I think she won that year, actually. But, like, she, she's a Tony-nominated performer. And when I try to tell people who she is, they're like, who is that? And I go, she's the fat friend who runs in the flashback scene of Never Been Kissed to tell Drew Barrymore that the popular boy is going to ask her to prom. Like, that is her cultural relevance to most people because they didn't see her do other things. And the same thing happened with like Nikki Blonsky and a lot of other people who have played Tracy Turnblad either on television, in movies, on Broadway, whatever, they can't cross over and do other things because Hollywood doesn't know what to do with fat women. And it's so infuriating. Like it's like immensely infuriating.
3: It just doesn't have to be this way. Like, I I could go on all day about this sort of, like, film financing model for independent film and, like, who is a bankable star or not and how that shapes the decisions around which movies are getting made beyond the studio level. But, yeah, it's just it's absolutely galling. And, you know, I. don't understand why we're having all these conversations around diversity and inclusion and diversifying screens and experiences on screen. Hollywood still cannot get over its fat phobia. It cannot get over its bias against fat actors and like i don't know to me it just it, it that conversation rings more hollow when we're not talking about fat folks and you know the, all of the intersectional identities that can come along with being fat along the way it just like it makes your blood boil you're like guys all of this talent that is being missed simply because of like what the scale says it's it's infuriating it makes you want to like burn shit to the ground um, but i think too it makes you appreciate like The extra time, the extra effort, the extra sort of bullshit that Ricky Lake, Nikki Blonsky, Marissa Jarrell Winnaker have to put up with to simply do their job and be great at it. um, When we should really just be getting out of the way and letting them show us their talents.
0: Agreed completely. And on that note, we need to talk about the other really wonderful fat character in the Hairspray universe. We need to talk about Edna Turnblad. Yeah. So, Kate... Let's talk first about Divine, because I think this is a character that we do have to separate between John Waters uh, and the movie musical for very obvious fucking reasons. Um, So let's talk about first Divine. How do you feel about Divine as Edna?
3: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about the fact that like, you know, I'm sure Divine is one of the first like, you know, trans actors I ever saw in a movie and just like, took it without even really thinking about it more than just like oh yeah it's divine she's awesome she works with John Waters she's very well cast is this like Baltimore mom who you know is trying to protect her daughter from some of the pain she's felt as a fat woman like I remember finding that performance incredibly funny the first time I watched it like just all of her little intonations and like little like flourishes she puts on words and mundane sentences and it's like uh it's just so funny and so lived in like I don't know you could see sort of John Waters pulling from moms he knew in his you know personal life growing up in Baltimore and you know all of their sort of peculiarities and and little quirks and things like that but I think, you know, it's a really incredible performance and it comes with the extremely sad footnote that it was Divine's final film performance. And you just think about, like, given what a hit Hairspray become, what else Divine would have done um, off of that mm-hmm. momentum. And it's it's heartbreaking. Um, the performance is incredible in the film. And I think that was one of the things that was most surprising to me about watching the musical of Hairspray is how much the character of Edna differs between the two uh Two versions of the movie, and you know, absolutely, sort of finding myself way more still on the side of divine um, as Edna and what she represents. Not just for Tracy, but I love that you know, in both versions, she is very much the object of desire for her husband, and you know, he is very into her size, and it's it's an exciting part of their relationship. Um, and that was even radical to just be like. Oh, like, it doesn't even have to have a caveat. He's just here for it. Um, Which was, you know, like, brain-breaking to 12-year-old me. Um, But, yeah, I mean, what what else can you say about Divine? Divine is Divine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Harmony, how about you? What's really interesting about Divine is that the character of Edna in the original just scans as a mom in such a seamless way that, like, I don't even process... That is being Divine, as in like, oh, Divine's a drag queen. Welcome to the hefty hideaway house of fashion for the ample woman. Hi, I'm Mr. Pinky.
2: Hi. Mr. Pinky, I'm Tracy's a business manager, Edna Turnblad.
1: Well, it's a pleasure to meet the both of you. Here we cater to the big bone gals like yourself who are stylish and at the same time frustrated by the lack of sizes in the department stores today. I saw you on TV. I want you to be my model. Would,
2: uh, would she be paid for this?
1: One free outfit a month. You start tomorrow. I hope there's no diets in the works because I want to design your Miss Otto show coronation gown myself. Could could you throw in a pair of complimentary petty pants in the deal? You drive a hard bargain, Miss Edna, and rightfully so. Petty pants, panty girdle. You just let Tracy take her pick. How about a fabulous frock just for me? Tracy will have to work one extra day for free. It's a deal. Thank you, Mr. Pinky. (laughs) I'm going to make you a stone.
0: For me, Edna in Hairspray 88 is such, like, an authentic mom character. Like, I mm-hmm. know so many moms that look like her who, you know, would have their hair pinned up while they're ironing clothes, but, like, would still have, like, their eyebrows done really well, mm-hmm. um, that would wear, like, casual moo-moo frocks and no bra, because, like, no one's seeing them. Why the fuck mm-hmm. would they? Whereas so many like drag performances and a lot of the stuff that Divine did do, like I love Lust in the Dust so much. Oh Holy my God, crap! That's so much fun. <laughs> um, but like in a lot of those characters, or even something like a female trouble, like Pink Flamingos, you look at the the costuming and the makeup, and you're like, that is like that is a performance. Like, that is that drag. Is, that is drag. That is a character. Edna's a mom. Like yeah. she just is a person that I know.
1: I, I and, think there's because there's that casualness to the earlier parts of the movie where and she's just at home, mm-hmm. I think that's what makes it feel so much more like a mom and just, like, somebody you know, rather than this larger-than-life, like, kill-the-rich kind of character that she's better known for.
0: Right, yeah, absolutely. And the the only frustration that I have, I guess, with, like, 88 Hairspray versus Lies, not the only one, like, I have a lot <laughs> of frustrations, but in in terms of not casting, but, like, story-wise – is Edna is so much more self-assured in this movie than mm-hmm. she is in 2007. She's way more insecure in mm-hmm. 2007. And that is partially because of the changes to the script that were made when it went to Broadway. But Harvey Firestein playing the character on Broadway and then again in the live show, that insecurity still comes off as strength because that's just the way that... He has played that character mm-hmm. because he's clearly so much more inspired by Divine. And like his performance is very much in honor and respect to Divine, which mm-hmm. I think is wonderful. Whereas then, let's go into 2007.
1: A little more of a wilted flower. It's a
0: little more of a wilted flower for for one. Um, I don't like the styling at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think John Travolta sucks <laughs> in this movie. And it like <laughs> totally like kicks the kneecaps out of like such an incredible character. And I hate it. Kate, how do you feel?
3: Oh man, guys, I had a really, really hard time with that particular aspect of the 2007 version. Like, there's some other things in the 2007 version that I feel like fall flat and are a little bit problematic, particularly some of the interracial romance stuff with Penny and with Seaweed. But to me, the movie just absolutely grinds to a halt anytime Travolta is on screen as Edna. I mean, we have to address the, I think, the sort of most upsetting part about that casting sort of beyond the the doing the female drag. For me, yes, that is offensive, but I am equally as offended by the fat suit and the way that Travolta is styled as Edna. It just feels like a caricature of that kind of, you know, quote unquote, homely mom type that sort of like, you know. I'm in my home and nobody sees me so I've just fully let myself go but I was shocked at how much of an agoraphobe they made Edna at how much as you guys said that she's a wilting flower that she doesn't have that confidence that she isn't assured and I just I didn't really get what Travolta was trying to do with the character of Edna. I had a hard time seeing what the performance was aside from the fat suit and there are some nice dancing moments but a lot of the singing with Travolta's Edna falls very flat for me Mm -hmm. and I don't know it just feels like a huge step backwards from the movie that's 20 years older Whereas you guys were saying you know Divine enmeshes so easily as a suburban mom you don't give it a second thought it's just so familiar. But in the 2007 Hairspray, you are acutely aware in every single scene that that is Vinnie Barbarino as Edna Turnblad, and that is it.
1: Maybe we should get you an agent.
2: Okay, you be my agent.
1: What? Tracy Turnblad, has fame gone to your head and made you wacky?
2: Well, why not?
0: Who's going to look out for me better than my mom? Me, an agent? You've seen me
1: hobnobbing and drinking rum and coke with all those hoi ploys.
2: And out negotiating them. Oh, you're crazy.
1: Oh, Tracy, I haven't left this house in, in years.
2: Then isn't it time yet? Oh, no, Tracy.
1: We'll have your father meet with him. I, I want to be seen like this. Why not? I'll do it after my next diet. That's when I'll do it. You see, the neighbors haven't seen me since I was a size 10
0: So... I I did a little research because I was like, why did they change the styling this intently? Because I I don't understand it. Because obviously, like the Harvey Firestein performance is so much an homage to Divine that it does have that like fabulousness and it feels so much more real. So what happened is the producers who produced this also worked on Chicago and they had approached Travolta and asked him if he wanted to play Billy Flynn in the movie version of Chicago, which eventually went to Richard Gere. Because he said no. He was like, I'm not interested in it. And then obviously, Chicago made a bajillion dollars and was nominated, like one best picture. So he
1: it it was nominated for like 12 Academy yeah, Awards. Yeah. It was one half of them. It was
0: ridiculous. <laughs> so when they came back around for Hairspray, they offered the role of Edna, likely because that's like one of the biggest roles for an adult of that age that's a man and that's what they wanted. Mm. Travolta ended up saying yes. And he had a lot of control, like creative control over the character, and he specifically wanted Elizabeth Taylor gone to flesh or Delta Burke. That's what he is trying to channel, which to me... I find super fucking offensive because one, I hate the expression gone to flesh. How dare you? Um, And second of all, like Delta Burke is one of the most like glamorous, like fat women. And the fact that like you are also saying that you're incapable of seeing like, a desirable, like interesting fat character outside somebody who is super glamorous is so limiting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like I just I don't know why it bothers me so much because I'm also very protective of Delta Burke, like <laughs> for what she represented to me, like watching her. Um, but for him to be like, yeah, I'm only gonna do it if I can look like this, it just enforces a lot of like really shitty, like fat phobic beauty standards that exist mm-hmm. where we are only seen as people if we are like unbelievably hot.
1: Like the, the, there's no depiction of like any state of undress or half made up like you see in the original.
0: Oh yeah, she's got a she's got a full beat on the entire fucking movie, <laughs> and like mm-hmm. her hair is in like perfect shape the entire movie, which is in like obviously it's not teased because that happens during Hey Mama Welcome to the Sixties, mm-hmm. but like her hair looks nice. Like she doesn't look like a mom that's been at home working hard and like whatever, like she woke up that day and did her mascara. Like, no.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And there's that line about, she's like, you know, I haven't been out of the house in however many years. And you're like, Oh, that's not great. That's not the Edna I know. Like, that's Mm -hmm. a very different, that's like a clinical vibe versus a like, you know, oh, I just, you know, don't want to hang out as many people as as I used to once hang out with because my body has changed and I'm insecure about it. It's like a very Mm -hmm. different type of Edna but yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it speaks to something that I've certainly gone through and I think a lot of other fat women and femmes have gone through of, you know, I am going to be the most feminine version of myself. I have a full beat. I am wearing a dress. I am showing you how good of a girl I am so that you forget that I am fat. And there's just something about that that I think you can really feel that inauthenticity that you never get from Divine. Because, you know, Divine in 88 Hairspray has got like curlers and like the moo -moo feels real. Whereas like, I don't know, Travolta's Edna, you're just so acutely aware of watching the performance and it really like takes you out of the movie, I think, because you have to stop and be like, Okay, Travolta's Edna is in a very different movie than the rest of this, even. I don't know what I'm doing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think Travolta is, in his own way, living removed from everyone else at all times. Um, It's really unfortunate that he is such a blemish on what is otherwise a really, really good cast. Like, I really love the cast of 2007 Hairspray, like, basically across the board. And there's this thing where... I want to be like, okay, let's try Let me, I want to try to understand Travolta. He hasn't done musicals in a while, but he's really good in them. Like the pure joy and charisma and presence he has in Greece that, that that's there somewhere in that man.
0: It's it's buried under a lot of prosthetics and a
3: fat suit. Yeah. Correct. BJ, did you find in your research why Harvey Firestein did not do the movie version? Did they just not feel like he was going to be bankable enough in the way they needed for the movie?
0: That That's pretty much what I have gathered from it. I think it was the producers came back because he had already said no to Chicago, but they still wanted him. And I think given the fact that Hairspray does require essentially an, an unknown lead, they needed a, a money maker. they needed somebody to draw in those general audiences, and the unfortunate reality is that it did work, because there were so many people who cited wanting to see John Travolta in drag that got them to the theater. And, uh, and that's so infuriating to me on a lot of levels, because- as much as I don't like the changes that are made to Edna's character in the stage show, like Harvey Fierstein knows how to make it work and mm-hmm. it's very evident when you watch the the live performance and Travolta just doesn't have it and like one thing that I do want to say and this is not me like defending Travolta at any stretch of the imagination this role is also happening during a period of his life where he is like clearly feeling the effects of he is no longer a hot shot Hollywood heartthrob like he used to be.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: so he's probably super fucking uncomfortable and it shows and like he should have said no to this like personally he should have said no to this like he was clearly not in the right headspace for this he clearly was struggling with like his own body image and it's apparent like I I hate to say it but I feel like when I watch him in this performance even with a fat suit on even with like the makeup and the hair I feel like I'm looking at somebody who is so wildly uncomfortable with their own appearance and like that character can't be this way Mm -hmm. like they just she just can't be this way and it's so evident that he's uncomfortable and it bums me the fuck out because part of the strength of hairspray is that the fat people are not uncomfortable and if anybody is uncomfortable with their fatness they're the ones with the problem
1: yeah, I was like, okay, so how do we feel about. Uh, the, the, here, here's the thing. Let's talk about Mr. Pinky for a second. Oh, I fucking love
0: Mr. Pinky, <laughs> Ally Forever. Yeah.
1: right? I, I love him. Um, also, I'm glad they brought Jerry Stiller back yeah. for, the, for the musical for that. That's lovely. I commented when we, we watched these both the same day, and I commented that they walk into Mr. Pinky's dre- dress shop, and it's like, wow look at all of these things that don't fall into any of our modern conventions of what fat fashion is. Because I don't know if anybody realizes this for me. Um, I wear like a size 20 most of the time in dress and I wear like a 4X. Like I am comfortably in plus size just because I am large. You're a giant vertically. and you're
2: broad. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm,
1: I'm, I'm got big bones and I'm tall. I'm comfortably in plus size, but not in the way that most people think they are. And I BJ and I will communicate when we're shopping sometimes the same website at the same time and it's just Ooh, like god
3: another cold shoulder skulls with flowers thank god maybe oh, a peplum top to set it all off thank you so much
1: a, a really bland tank top that has french on it and maybe kissy lips Oh god. Great. <laughs> anyway Mr. Pinky has great fashion and I love it but when you get to the 2007 one how much is like He and so many other people bribing Edna with food? I was going
3: to bring that up, Harmony. I was so upset by, like, the emphasis on, like, food and dieting and losing a few pounds in the musical version Mm -hmm. when that is just, like... Not mentioned in the 88 one, or when it is, it's like you're in on the joke of how ridiculous it is. But, like, mm-hmm. to me, the moment when Edna goes to the sort of like party with Motormouth Maybell, and Motormouth Maybell is like, Oh, I made you a buffet to keep you here. I was like, What am I watching? What are we even saying with this, folks? Like, it's a huge bummer and it's a real downgrade from the 88 version hmm
0: absolutely i oh god i agree completely and this is like another one of those things where like i like that you mentioned that in 88 when that happens like you're in on the joke and i feel like the stage version like any of those references you're in on the joke the movie doesn't frame it that way like the movie frames it in this way that feels like really really uncomfortable and i say this as somebody who has absolutely been in shows where like my weight is the punchline but like i own the punchline so like for those that don't know um one of the last, like big professional roles that I did as I played Catherine in Silence, the musical, which is Silence of the Lambs, the musical. It's obviously a parody, but I'm cast as a fat woman in a hole. Like, that's my job. And there is an entire song that Buffalo Bill sings called Are You About a Size 14, which, LOL, you fucking wish I was a 22. (laughs) Um, But, like, how he gets me to, like, get in the van is he, like, leaves a trail of Twinkies. But, like, I'm in on the joke, and, like, there's a lot of winking to the audience of, like, this is ridiculous, And all of the fat jokes that exist in silence are very much ones that, like, Catherine's character is in control of. Um, They make you play multiple roles. So I also play, like, whoever plays Catherine usually plays the dead body of Frederica Bimmel, uh, the woman who is found, like, drowned. And when they're doing, like, the body examination, it turns into, like, a lot, like, just a rapid-fire line of a lot of people being, like, okay, describe the body. Oh, she's, you know, brunette. She's this. She's also fat. How fat is she? Oh, she's so fat. And then it goes into like those old school, like yo mama fat jokes. But it's so funny because then the character wakes up on the like, the, the table and is like, guys, what the fuck? Like, come on. And then, like, she goes back to pretending she's dead. So, like, you own those fat jokes. And, like... Well, it, is
1: Travolta able to own fat jokes I don't think not Tra- fat? I don't
0: think Travolta, one, knows how to own fat jokes because he's uncomfortable with his body. And, uh-huh. two, like, he has spent most of his life not existing in a fat body. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't under... Like, that's going to be touchy for him because he hasn't done the work yet to understand, like, how to overcome that bullshit. Mm-hmm. But the musical, like, the movie musical shoots all of those scenes where like when he looks at like when Travolta looks at like the plates of food, you might as well be looking at the scenes from Wayne's world when Wayne looks at Cassandra and Dreamweaver starts playing. Uh And like, (laughs) like if they went that far and like went full camp on it, I think I would have less of an issue, but they don't. So then it falls into this weird, like, fatphobic reality that I don't like and doesn't fit in the world of this movie. Like, everything, every decision that was made about Travolta in this is the wrong one. (laughs) Every
1: fucking one of them. Here's the thing. They do do that with Travolta for other things, like the whole number that he has with Christopher Walken. Like, that feels like we have stepped into, like, a campy, silly world, but... The other scenes with him don't work. No, so they like don't. we're capable of stepping outside of this like really grounded, kind of muted area with Travolta in this role we just don't do it at the right times.
3: <laughs> I think for me that was the number one thing missing from the movie musical was just that sense of camp and that sense of being in on the joke, that sense of being very tongue in cheek and, you know, knowing what the audience expectation is going to be and then subverting it. I feel like they mm-hmm. play the movie too straight. It's too like it's a little too squeaky clean and earnest to really land the way that the 88 one lands, at least for me. Oh yeah!
0: No, I agree completely because I think there are some people that very much understand the movie they're in. Um, so let's go to like some villains. I, I love both versions of Velma Von Tussle being Debbie Harry and Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh yeah! The insults that they use are obviously not the the best aged um, because they are using offensive terms left and right because they're bad people Mm -hmm. uh this is definitely an example of depiction is not endorsement they are like these people are not painted as heroes uh you're supposed to not like them but i feel like especially in 2007 like michelle pfeiffer is owning the hell out of being this like cartoon villain um Mm -hmm. to a point where like whenever she's kind of battling off with edna it feels like you're watching two different movies yeah yeah yeah
3: She's one of the highlights for me and I I agree that I think she's one of the few people that understands what movie she's in. Also, it's just really nice to see Michelle Pfeiffer in a musical again. Why didn't we put (laughs) Michelle Pfeiffer in more musicals, guys? Yeah, because last
0: week we did Grease 2 for my birthday and it's pretty much just me gushing about how much I love Michelle Pfeiffer (laughs) um, because she's so brilliant and it is ridiculous that she didn't get to do more musicals. So I remember when they made, like, the casting announcement for this movie. Um, I do remember immediately being pissed about John Travolta. Like, mm-hmm. even before I saw anything, I was like, no. <laughs> but when they were like, Michelle Pfeiffer is <laughs> Velma, I was like, no, that's brilliant, though. Like, that uh-huh. is very inspired casting. And she did not let me down. Uh, I think she very much channels that same, like, bitchy scowl energy of Debbie Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like her wigs better in this movie. I know. Hot take.
1: Um, I think they're both great. I think <laughs> that Debbie Harry's are a lot more over the top. Debbie Harry, who I think just doesn't have as much to work with as Michelle Pfeiffer does in her movie. Yes, that I do agree with. I love Debbie Harry as an actor a lot more than I like her for her music, which is, you know, a really bold thing to say. But, God, Michelle Pfeiffer is, like, so commanding and dominant and so evil.
0: And she knows how to add character to her song because, like, it sounds awful. But when there's that, like horrifically anti-Semitic line in Baltimore Crab where she's making fun of that girl's nose and then says, oiga govalt. You're like, oh, you put a character in there because you're an evil cartoon villain. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, I get this. I You understood the assignment. I am so sad that people around you did not.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah, her, I would say both her and Queen Latifah as Motormouth Maybell for me are improvements on in terms of casting and the overall character from the 88 version. But I think it's just a question of of like where the focus was whereas in a musical you have more time to spend with characters like Velma Von Tussle, like Motormouth Maybell, mm-hmm. But man, Queen Latifah, that is one thing I will say for the 2007 version. As much as Travolta is an absolute failure as Edna, Latifah is incredible as Motormouth Maybell. Those scenes really mm-hmm. sing. It brings such a warmth that the movie needs. I think it really grounds it in like a very real way in terms of her family and what they're going through in the context of the Courtney Collins show. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just, I don't know, it's like, every Everybody got a different assignment for this script and just sort of like went off on their own movie because there are these moments where it starts to really cook with gas and gel. And then there'll be other scenes that you're just like, what? That completely took me out of this great musical number that I just watched.
0: Uh, Oh, totally. I agree completely. And I do want to like highlight the people that I think because you're absolutely right like the musical does like give us a little bit more time with a lot of these characters than we get in 88.
1: Oh, it's got 30 more minutes.
0: Right. Well, not only does it have 30 yeah. more minutes, but like they cut things. Like so mm-hmm. one thing I will say is the movie musical does not include Tracy going to jail, which really fucks the movie in my opinion because then it makes her look like that white girl who ran away and not that white girl who got arrested because she was standing up for doing the right thing Mm -hmm. Um, so I have a huge issue with them cutting that aspect out of the movie musical like massively I have an issue with that Um, but the characters that I think also are improved upon um, I love that this is like the third installment of the James Marsden himbo trifecta um, (laughs) with Sugar and Spice Enchanted and this where just so good That fucking smile and, like, his dance moves and how he is constantly, like, undercutting both Von Tussle women because he knows they're assholes, Mm -hmm. I think is really wonderful because, unfortunately, we do lose the Mink Stoll character, which is always a heartbreak. Yeah. And that character sort of then infused into Corny Collins as the host, which I do like.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Like, if you're going to get rid of Mink Stoll, give me more James Marsden. Like, I guess that's how I feel. And
1: arguably my favorite James Marsden, just because this feels like the role he was born to play, because he's so good at it. He's so cute. <laughs> he is. Like... Oh, my God. He has this smile that he is just euphoric to be there. Mm-hmm. Like, he, there's nowhere in the universe he would rather be than in Hairspray being Corny Collins.
3: <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of cuties, too, I do think we have to call out Zac Efron, who is doing some heroic work. And, like, I will say that was one of my takeaways that I sort of wish I would have seen the movie musical as an actual teenager, because I think that Zac Efron character and the way that he romances Tracy would have really meant something to me as like a very dorky 17 year old who was like uh, no boys are ever gonna like me until I lose weight <laughs> like in uh, my romantic life is not gonna start until this happens and I think it's really kind of dope that like you know hunky heartthrob Zac Efron was down for the challenge of of playing Link and like really sells that he is into Tracy in a way that you know I don't think we get in the 88 Hairspray we get significantly less time with that character but at least you feel the sort of interplay of the romance in this one a bit more and I think it Mm -hmm. makes their eventual getting together feel a lot more satisfying than it does for Tracy in the 88 one Um, yeah we're finding positives guys look at this.
1: <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of positives. I just think there's significantly more negatives, personally. But I think Link is cool and hunky in both of them. But I love Zach Efron in this role, especially because he clearly got this because of High School Musical, which he is not allowed to sing in the original High School Musical. And he does in this one. And I think that is bold and very cool.
0: I agree completely because that's a thing that a lot of people don't remember because he does get to sing in High School Musical 2 which comes out the same year Mm -hmm. but he didn't get to sing in High School Musical 1 and I know that the amount of people that I did like theater with or whatever thought that it was the funniest thing in the world. Like, oh my God, Zach Efron with this fat girl. And I was just, like infuriated because I had seen the John Waters movie Ooh at this to them. point. So like I knew like that's part of the thing. And I was like, no, no, no. It's not a joke though. And they're like, what do you mean it's not a joke? And I'm like, no, it's serious. Like he likes her because she's a good dancer. She stands up for what's right and she's funny and she's hot. Mm-hmm. Like the fat like there it's not a joke that link likes her and like the fact that you think it is a joke is really you telling on yourself
3: mm-hmm. yeah and i mean it's just like again people i don't think fully realize like what a wasteland it was for like any kind of like fat woman to get romanced on screen where it wasn't a punchline where it wasn't some sort of like punishment like literally the other example we had from that era is shallow howl guys like (laughs) seeing zach efron like be so into tracy that was my one regret in waiting this long to see it is i do think that like that would have really really had a big impact on me as a teenager to see that romance presented so lovingly and with Mm zach efron being so game for it but yeah it's i remember those conversations too of like oh is he really gonna like fuck the fat girl and you're like god like, what is wrong with you? Um, but, you know, those conversations have changed and not changed in the intervening 15 years in many ways.
1: Once I was a selfish fool who never
2: understood.
3: Never looked inside myself, though on the outside
2: I looked good. Then we met and you made me the man I am today.
3: Tracy, I'm in love with you no matter what you weigh
1: is like the seasons no summer without love life is rock and roll without a drummer Tracy I'll, I'll be yours forever cause I never wanna be
2: without love Tracy never
0: set me free. so now I feel like is a good time to kind of tackle the like the crux of this movie and I do want to say before we dive into it, admittedly, like because a lot of people have talked about how a lot of teen movies deal with a lot of intersectional issues and like Hairspray is no exception because Hairspray is as much about fatness as it is about the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And we are not people of color here having this conversation. So know that th- this is is coming from perspectives of people who obviously have not been on the receiving end of of racism Mm -hmm. um but it is part of this this conversation to have so i guess let's start with the 88 because i think these movies handle them in like very similar ways but also at the same time very different ways Mm -hmm. so kate like how do you feel about the 88 handling of this topic
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good note to point out that, like, this was John Waters' sort of utopian vision of what could have possibly happened on the Buddy Dean show. And it's important to remember that it is a sort of utopian fantasy of the civil rights era in America and what, you know, a couple of teenagers could enact in in terms of, like, their local community. And it does paint, like... A sort of rosier picture of that than was the actual reality for many actual black folks in America. But, you know, I think that the the movie, the 88 movie, sort of handles it in a way that feels certainly more progressive than a lot of stuff at the time like I know around then a lot of the movies that were dealing with quote-unquote you know civil rights issues were things like Mississippi Burning or Glory where it's more about black suffering than it is about black joy and bringing black joy Mm. into the world and I remember being really surprised that that was the major plot of Hairspray I didn't know that when I was a kid going in I thought it was just like oh fat lady is gonna dance nice I had no idea that the whole backbone of the movie was centered around the struggle for integration and for you know increasing visibility of of black people and their incredible talents and like how that shapes tracy's entire worldview but i love you know i think bj you hit on a key problem with the the movie musical version like Tracy in the 88 version is very very resolved in what the right thing to do is and she sort of follows that all the way through whether it's like you know the first time she starts hanging out with the black students at her high school in the special ed class and realizes like how duped she's been her whole life To actually going to jail, to how she supports Penny in terms of her romance. Like, it's just a really nice beat to give that character in terms of like being an ally in a way that doesn't feel cloying or doesn't feel white savory, even though there is some white savory stuff in both versions of the movie that I think is absolutely Mm -hmm. real. Um, But I feel like, you know the sort of grit of the 88 Tracy makes you believe more that she would actually be fighting for these things among her friends, whereas the 2007 version, it just, I don't know, it's that kind of like, oh I don't know, like, I don't want to say like Obama's America, but that sort of weird delusion that I think a lot of people fell into in the mid 2000s of like, we're a post racial society, we're a post gender society, we're a post class society, when in reality, all of those things were still impacting lives in a very real way for many Americans. But it's like, oh, look at this like cute, fun version of it. Isn't it fun that we've completely solved this? Isn't it quaint to look at now? Whereas the 88 version, you're like, this was 20 years ago. This is not that far off. It just feels like a different sort of social reality between the two movies to me.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even speaking of the grittiness, because obviously John Waters is going to be grittier than any kind of shiny musical. That's just how he is. Um, One thing that I noticed, like, in terms of how the original Hairspray deals with its topics versus the 2007 version is that for the majority of its runtime, like, it's campy it's silly it handles serious things with like a wink to the camera going like can you believe these assholes like that's how it deals with a lot of its more difficult topics but then you get to um what is is it the um like it's like a fair or something I don't remember where basically all hell breaks loose because you have racists throwing firecrackers and there's fist fights and Link gets his kneecaps broken but apparently he's fine
0: at the end he's dancing even <laughs> yeah. though his kneecaps have been broken don't worry yeah. about you
1: it get guys these, you get these two things and how they 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 work in their respective films, and I have to say that like the seriousness with which the original handles it feels so much more earned than the two thousand and seven version.
0: No, I agree with you completely on that, and something that I had read in doing a little bit of research is a big reason why. Hairspray was adapted as a musical, was obviously there's a lot of good elements working for it. You get to have a fun fat lead, it's all about dancing. There's teen stuff, there's lots of color. But it's more a period piece. It's a period it's piece. It's everything like, Broadway loves. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff about it that Broadway loves. But more importantly, the thing they love the most is an easily digestible, uh, important social message that they don't have to unpack very deeply. Mm. So whereas like John Waters, obviously, like this is an idealistic fantasy film for him they took that, like, on on its face, basically. They were like, we're not going to kind of unpack the satire that's happening. We're not going to unpack the subversion that's happening. We're going to present it as if, like, racism is a lot more about, like, personal opinions and, like, look at that one racist that's causing problems mm-hmm. and not, like, a systemic structural issue that is harming the entire community. Mm-hmm. And – but at the same time, and this is also something to keep in mind, and this is – very much me saying like, hey, there are a lot of dumb fucking white people in this world who kind of need things spoon fed to them like babies because mm-hmm. they're dumb. Um, there, There's an article that was written in The Atlantic uh, right around the time that the Hairspray Live show is going out about how Hairspray and its, uh, its treatment of racism in the musical and in the movie musical very much fits in kind of that Obama era that you were talking about. Where they say, like, it's a problem because it's obviously, like, not treating it with the severity that a topic like that deserves. So there are a lot of people that don't interrogate that deeper. So in their brain, they're like, wasn't it a bummer that segregation was a thing? That sure was not fun. We should have just removed the rope. And every day could have been Negro Day. Like, it's Mm -hmm. very much, like, that sort of mentality. But at the same time, this writer says, by representing this reality in bubblegum technicolor clarity... Hairspray does something that pure documentation at times can't. It makes a difficult part of nation's history accessible to millions of viewers. Hairspray does encourage its audience to take the fight to integrate a teenage TV show seriously, and it does so through songs, dances, and costumes that celebrate and satirize the 60s. The film's executive producer, Craig Zayden, argued that what makes Hairspray work is that you never feel like we're on a soapbox or we're preaching to you, Or we're saying that this is a lesson you need to learn, and yet hopefully you will come away with it with something serious to talk about afterwards. But there is no guarantee that all viewers will take up these discussions, but Hairspray offers plenty of material for those who choose to do so. So in a way, the musical can kind of serve as like a Trojan horse of Mm -hmm. like, look at big, fun, flashy 60s musical. Hooray for Fat Girl. Psych, now we're talking about race relations, and you're going to learn a thing. Exclusively
1: for the whole second half of the movie. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) so it's it's complicated because there really is no like good way to have these conversations and like it is admittedly like very much putting the white perspective in the forefront and as the priority by being like well we need it to be palatable for white people but the problem is like as we've discussed for ad nauseum for the last couple of years like racism is a white people problem Mm -hmm. and if this is how we can get through to people then like that's a good thing and then once they like take off their little training wheels of hairspray, then we need to have more serious conversations. Because this is what this is. This is training wheels.
3: Yeah, I would be curious. I've never seen the stage musical. I would be curious if I felt differently about how the sort of, you know, explore exploration of integrating Courtney Collins and the, the tendrils that that sends out into Tracy's Baltimore, if it felt more authentic and a little bit less bubblegum in the musical version than the movie musical version. Because, yeah... There's just something about it that I don't know if it fully scans, and even if the idea is we're going to try and incept some racist white people who are watching this with something that they may not have thought this was about or may not have considered, I still think it's a very softball version of that and sort of, you know, it's one of those things that it's like, well, you know, wouldn't it terrible white people will be like well I can't be racist because I have a black friend like I can't be racist because I liked hairspray. It's like no, you very much still can be like and mm-hmm. I it's just a, it it's very surreal I think though to feel like the discussions of the story's racial elements, Feel more retrograde in the modern version of the movie than they do in the old version of the movie mm-hmm. um, but yeah I was thinking about how I would love to see like a a fat black femme direct a version of Hairspray like I would love to see Hairspray with a new sort of lens on it like what if we told mm-hmm. Hairspray from the Motormouth Maybell perspective like I don't know there's just something about it as much as I love the original that you do sort of understand like you know why this feels less resonant to younger generations and why like let's say a teenager today maybe watching either version of hairspray would be like yeah that's cute that's quaint that's not the world we live in it's nice like here's a gold star for trying but that's about all you get um because yeah it's you know i think we all have a variety of reactions to how well that stuff lands or does not land. I gotta say, I thought the major failure of the discussions of the implications of race in the movie is some of the songs that Penny sings and some of the lyrics specifically about interracial romance that just coming out of a white woman's mouth do not sound great now I can't imagine they sounded great in 2007 no offense to Amanda Bynes who otherwise gives a very good performance and that's part of her character I understand why she needed to deliver but some of those specific lyrics just really do not play well
0: oh yeah it comes off very fetishistic um like uh because it's what it is and like the, the, one of the big ones in you can't stop the beat is um Penny Screams like I'm a checkerboard chick which is a reference to something that like the beatniks say to them when they're hiding out in 1988 well the thing is like uh, th- again the beatniks are not like supposed to be these characters that we really like mm-hmm. um, it's the guy from the cars and Piazzadora
1: <laughs> like Excuse me his name is Rick Acosta <laughs> thank you
0: um so like <laughs> You're not supposed to look at those characters as like ideals. Like, they don't talk you know, the most politically correct. They're supposed to
1: seem douchey because they are.
0: Exactly. So then they took that line and then they tried to make it like an empowerment thing. And I'm like, that's weird. Like, that's like the weird white ladies that are like, I can't wait to have a mixed race baby. And you're like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, that's (laughs) not a thing you should say ever or feel or believe. Like, that's a weird thing to say. Mm -hmm. But I am really, really glad that you mentioned something because I've been holding this one like deep in my soul. Uh, You mentioned, like, younger audiences watching Hairspray for the first time. Hairspray went viral on TikTok a couple months ago.
1: Oh, no. Oh, boy. Because
0: (laughs) Gen Z saw Hairspray, and they obviously uh, did not watch it all the way through.
1: Are we talking 2007 or 88?
0: I'm talking 2007. Okay. And there was a trend of young Gen Z kids talking about Hairspray and how racist it is because... Um, did you they said Negro Day oh they're they can't dance in the same they're stealing each other's songs and like these kids like they never finished the fucking movie Mm -hmm. like they just got so mad about the fact that this is a movie set in the 60s and like integration has not happened yet on television and they didn't have that like historical context because again the american public school system fucking fails every student Mm because we don't give them an accurate picture this is why we need critical race theory holy shit but they didn't know this stuff like they didn't know that that was a world that we lived in so they saw hairspray and freaked the fuck out and they were like this is the most racist thing i've ever seen i can't believe this and then
1: so they just basically didn't know that america was racist
0: I guess, I guess, because then what ended up happening is there had to be, like, this big wave of, like, black elders who had to get on TikTok and, like, make these response videos like, children, please, for the love of God, watch the whole movie before you're making a take. And second of all, like, do you not know that that's a real thing? Like, our grandparents your grandparents like that's the life they lived like that's real Mm -hmm. and it was just so mind-blowing to me to see like well one it was like kind of like nice it's like yeah you should get this bad because it was fucked up great but like they didn't finish the movie (laughs) so they were just like i can't believe this movie made 200 million dollars and it's like you gotta get to the end my friends please watch the whole thing media literacy is dying and it makes me sad (laughs) thing
1: with stories. Is that they have parts, and they have journeys, (laughs) and they have endings.
0: Yeah, it was just, it was a wild, like, three days, because that's, like, the time period of TikTok. Like, things happen for three days, and then they go away. (laughs) And
3: it's wild, Um. too, because, like, I don't know, I just feel like, we're really losing the plot on the depiction does not equal endorsement conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's ultimately going to do a lot more to harm us in the long run by not depicting these sort of like, like I talk about with my parents all the time. We don't understand why there's not a sitcom with like a MAGA Archie Bunker type, like just an absolute, like sort of, you know, right wing conspiracy nut, And to show like, you know, how ridiculous that kind of lifestyle fundamentally is and what a buffoon the people who espouse those hateful philosophies are. But we can't even laugh at the ridiculousness of that stuff anymore. And this is not about cancel culture. This is not about political correctness. It's just about being able to read whatever the thing is in front of you. And that's especially interesting. I had no idea that that had happened on TikTok, but it sort of feels like not wanting to engage with the reality of you know just 50 60 years ago in america and the realities for our parents and our grandparents and you know just their daily lives but i don't know it's it's interesting seeing what the younger generation is sort of picking up in terms of being offensive because there are many legitimate things that hairspray can be docked for in terms of the way it deals with race but like The sort of, you know, integration of the Corney Collins show, like, that needs to be taken as it is in the movie and fully explored. It can't just be like, oh, well, they say Negro Day, so on its own, that is fully racist, and this movie is canceled. And, like, please understand the context. Please watch the whole movie. And then if you still think (laughs) it's racist, that's okay, but, like, just give it a fair shot.
0: Right, and that's very much how I felt about it, and it was just really kind of wonderful to see, like, the amount of people that were just like, oh, my God. Because, like, you could tell they were like, I can't believe they're not watching the whole movie. But it really did kind of bring up this very interesting thing. And I'm glad that you were talking about, like, you know, the, the depiction is not endorsement sort of mentality of it, because... I think that, like, this is, like, both movies more so 88 than 2007, but there are so many aspects of it where, like, yeah, the depiction is not endorsement. Like, mm-hmm. the villains in this movie are such assholes. Like, Amber Von Tussle, both the Colleen Fitzpatrick, which, spoiler alert, if y'all don't know, that's Vitamin C who sings the graduation song. <laughs> um, but her and then Brittany Snow in this, like, they're such assholes evil bitches and they're so mean and they say the nastiest shit to Tracy I think honestly like she's meaner in 2007 because like we're getting close to like edgelord humor mm-hmm. so like everything she says is way more cutting and like unrelentlessly like mean Um but she's like such a bad person whereas like in every other movie that character is like the hero even if she's the mean girl you like you like a Regina George but it's like no 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 Amber Von Tussle sucks like mm-hmm. she's awful but what's also interesting about that character is that we see her mom so we know where she gets it from so then there's also this like fun understanding that happens where like it doesn't excuse any of like her behaviors at all but you're like oh no i see where you get this from and it's one of those instances where you can watch a movie and go this is why kids end up like this this is how we get like madison cawthorns of the world because their parents also suck Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, and we see the opposite with Tracy and Edna and her dad in terms of like, oh no, like, this is a good and noble thing you are doing, Tracy. You should, you know, we don't want you to get arrested and we have some qualms about, like, you know, are you going to the sort of rebellious teen side? But I think, you know, when they sort of find out what the the underlying cause between her mission is, like, they very much get on board and it, I, it's a really interesting difference in terms of, like, you know, hate can be passed down generationally and love can also be passed down generationally. But, mm-hmm. uh-huh. yeah, I mean, like, Amber and Velma are such arch-villains. It's like, guys, it's also not an accident that they present as, like, you know, blonde and blue-eyed and that sort of very Aryan stereotype of whiteness. And it's like, yeah, guys, let's maybe talk about that also. Like, that's important. Mm -hmm. It's not an accident. Don't
2: anybody come near me. I'm armed and I'm prepared to protect myself. Oh, God, Mother. I know you were snatched, Penny, and I've come to save
0: you. Oh, Papa Toonie, we got a loony! Don't you try any of
1: your voodoo spells on me, you native woman. We're just dancing. Mrs. Pingleton, stop acting crazy. These are our friends. Yeah. Don't act
3: ignorant, Tracy Turnblad. Come on, Penny. Come on. Run. Run. Run, Riddler.
0: And then so something interesting that I also want to bring up is that we then get the person who kind of like breaks the generational curse in terms of Penny because her mother is just nothing but, you know, moral panic embodied as a human being. And then you have Penny who like does realize like, oh, I'm very attracted to seaweed who happens to be black. And it never to me feels like Penny is doing like the, oh, I'm going to date him because it's going to piss off my parents. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's how Penny feels. She, the, the things that they have her say in 2007, I have so many qualms with. Um, but in terms of like her actual character motivation, like she's just very into seaweed because he's hot as shit. Mm -hmm. And like they get along with each other. Um, I hate that 2007 doesn't give us more of her mom because it is such a waste of Alice and Janney.
1: Correct. She only has like three yeah. scenes.
0: Yeah. And that is bullshit. Like, why did we not get Alice and Janney like running through the streets trying to find Penny and freaking the fuck out? Because like, that would have been hilarious. We
1: needed to give that scene to John Travolta so that he could then drool over a roast. <sighs> oh, clearly boy. the better choice.
2: Oh,
0: you're absolutely right. That's exactly what they did is they needed to add another John Travolta fat suit joke. And we were denied Alice and Janney screaming, which is better than anything (laughs) that that anyone could ever want. Yeah.
3: Choices were Uh. made.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Again, every choice about John Travolta is the wrong choice to be made. So, one thing, though, that both movies do incredibly well, and I think it's very important to highlight, is both movies are spectacular looking. Mm -hmm. Like, they are just stunning. So... Kate, how do you feel about like the styling of both of these movies?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely something that you can say about the 2007 version is that the production design is exquisite, the costuming is, is exquisite, and Adam Shankman's choreography, as well as his directing of a lot of complex musical numbers is very well done throughout. There's a real sense of momentum and movement and blocking and things that a lot of contemporary musicals have seemed to forgotten about just, you know, to say nothing of movies generally, but I think there's also a lot to be said for what John Waters did on a much smaller budget in 1988, (laughs) Um, particularly um, some of the, you know, more colorful locations in that movie, The Hefty Hideaway, when they go to the Beatnik's apartment, even the Courtney Collins show set, you know, it's working within a sort of, um, you know, smaller canvas, but I think does a really nice job. I mean, I think we all still sort of dream of the, you know, Tracy Turnblad cockroach dress from uh, Hefty Hideaway, which is just like, (laughs) you know, so perfect and so campy and such an incredible subversion of what it means to be a fat woman who is beautiful. Like, no notes. Great job, guys.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my only complaint, like... In either of them is I hate that the blonde in Tracy's hair was not toned, so it's really brassy. Um, I agree. <laughs> that's yeah. my only beef. I wish that it was like that platinum that we get in 2007 because it just, I, I personally have an affront as somebody who grew up in the 2000s and watched a lot of boys bleach their hair without toning. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's what it is. I think it's like my fight or flight kicks in where I'm like, why do you want to be Justin Timberlake? Get away from <laughs> me. Um
1: I miss that they didn't bring the bug dress back for the for the musical.
0: I am sad about that, too, because the roach dress is, one, incredible, and I will absolutely sh- throw shade about this on the show. I told Harmony about this, but I have been trying to, like, chase down a roach dress for many, many years. I know that every once in a while there are a couple designers that will do some cor- sort of, like, plus-size dress with, like, a roach pattern on it. I'm going to buy one because um, one of my exes was, like, phobic of roaches, and I wanted to buy the dress, and and they were like, you can't have it because it'll scare the hell out of me because I don't like roaches. So now I can do that because I'm in a wonderful relationship with somebody who embraces me in a roach dress. So I'm going to get one.
1: (laughs) I hate roaches, but I also like fashion.
3: (laughs) I will say the final number dress that Tracy wears in the 2007 version, the like black and white mod number with the boots Mm -hmm. and her hair down is adorable. And I think a really nice like sort of nod to where things were going and the future that sort of hairspray is leading to. So it's nice to see like that incredible look for Nikki Blonsky in the finale of the 2007 version 2 We didn't get a roach dress, but that's a pretty cute alternative.
1: Yeah. Like I have no criticisms with that. I just would have liked the roach dress to have been there at some point, but they also <laughs> changed how the climax of this whole thing goes where it's now taking place on the Corny Collins show and not at an auto show. So it, it, there were some things that had to be moved around a little bit.
0: Yeah, there's there's definitely some changes. I like the, I love the mod dress. I think that it's a great look for her. It also does pay homage to when she has the straight hair in prison, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, I'm so upset that that scene is not in the movie because it makes, it makes Tracy look a little gutless, and that bothers me um, on a lot of levels. Um, also,
1: speaking of hair, what is a hair hopper? <laughs> Do we know by chance? I don't know what this term means.
3: Maybe like in a proto-bump it, like an early... Really bump it
1: Oh God! What if it's the '60s version of a bump? Just <laughs> metal
3: and spikes and pain. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so all a hair hopper is—I did look up the official definition. Apparently, John Waters came up with it, which oh. I love. Oh, cool. Um, but a hair hopper, as any good Baltimorean knows, is someone who favors a tall hairstyle kept in place with hairspray. Oh. Um, so basically, like it's just kind of a slang term for somebody who has like the big, big hair. Big hair.
1: Bigger the hair, closer to Jesus or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm very much that speaking of like the big hair I do also want to shout out that when Tracy is singing I think it's when she's singing I can hear the bells in the 2007 she's singing in the bathroom and there are girls smoking and it is so very clearly like girls that are stylized female trouble and that makes me very happy like it makes my heart very (laughs) happy granted none of them are fat and I wish that they were but like I was looking at their sweaters with the plaid skirts and like the pale lipstick and I was like I know what you are (laughs) and that made me happy because there are a lot of like cute little nods like John Waters has a cameo. In 2007, he's the he's flasher. In both of them. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, he—he's
1: uh, <laughs> the doctor who wants to hypnotize Penny in the original. <laughs> Great cameos. He's, he's really funny and awful.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just chasing her around with like the little spiral. Uh, yeah. Terrifying, but also great. I do love that not only did they bring back Jerry Still Over 2007, but they gave him a John Waters mustache. I mm-hmm. think it was great. great. Um, like little stuff like that just like warms my heart because it's kind of like, hey, don't forget this movie was written by perverts. <laughs> like yep. you need to remember that. Like pay homage to your Pope of Filth. Um, So that's pretty much, I guess, how I feel. And I think that we've, you know, analyzed to death both both hairsprays in a way that makes me feel very justified in my hatred of John Travolta, but also very affirmed in my love of what Tracy Turnblad represents as much as, you know, I do have like that that pain of being typecast so frequently. That's not her fault. Tracy did not do that to me. Nope. It's the systemic issues of fatphobic casting directors. Like, that's their fault. That's where my anger needs to be. And I do also want to shout out, there is an incredible podcast specifically about fatness in theater that is called more than Tracy Turnblad that I highly recommend people check out. It's really wonderful, and she frequently will interview, like, other fat actors, and they will talk about fat roles, um, specifically within the context of theater. So if that's something that interests you, definitely give it a listen. I I think that it's great. Okay, Harmony. Oh, yeah. This is, you got two invitations here, so you're going to have to make some decisions.
2: Okay.
1: Hairspray
0: 1988 and Hairspray 2007 are both asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Are you buying them tickets so they can go on their own? Are you making different decisions for each film?
1: They are getting different decisions.
2: Ooh.
1: Um. Here's the thing, I have a lot of love for aspects of the musical,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and some parts that I don't love nearly as much, mm-hmm. so it's going to get a maybe, but I'm probably not going to revisit it very often, I think it may have been since high school since I saw it last, and mm-hmm. we'll probably put it off for another 10 years maybe, we'll go <laughs> get around to it. The original however, I think for what it is, and for when it came out, I think it holds up remarkably well, all things considered. Uh, I think it's a good film for teens to deal with a lot of different topics, and I think it gets a big old old yes, personally.
0: Love it. Yeah. That's what I was hoping for. I was like, I don't feel like you're going to say yes to the musical, but
1: I think you are going to say yes to the original. Yeah, I have a lot more fondness for the musical in my memory than I do (laughs) now.
0: Yeah, I feel very similar. Like There are definitely aspects of it that I remember being like, hell yeah. Like, Elijah Kelly- like sing run and tell that I'm like god he's a superstar and like it kills me that he didn't become a superstar because he's so captivating and just like he's a great dancer he's a great singer he's so attractive and I'm like why are you not the biggest thing in the world um so I I very much remember that I do remember a lot of like the cute isms of Amanda Bynes's character Uh,
1: Christopher Walken's lovely yes
0: I do like Christopher Walken okay if there is one good thing John Travolta did he got to pick uh who was gonna play Wilbur and he really wanted Christopher Walken because they had done a lot of stuff on Broadway together and so John Travolta is why we get Christopher Walken he gets one point so he's still in the negative um but he gets at least one.
1: (laughs) Somehow, Christopher Walken is not the most perplexing person in this movie, accent-wise.
3: Yep, 100%. Somehow. What the shit was that accent?
1: (laughs) It feels like a slurry Long Island accent. I don't know what that is supposed to be. The
3: Travolta Baltimore accent is really incredible because, like, I don't know, I think we've all watched enough Baltimore-centric things that you, even if you've never lived there, you get a vibe for what it sounds like. And it seems like Travolta was going for something and just did not get there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know what the hell was happening there at all yikes <laughs> well Kate thank you so much for joining us and for being here where can people find you, your work if you want them to find you on the internet where can they do that? Yeah
3: I would say the best place to find me is probably on Twitter uh, my Instagram handle is the same which makes life easy so I am at that Hagen girl. T-H-A-T-H-A-G-E-N G-R-R-L um, you can find my work in places like Letterboxd, Playboy, The Blacklist Blog, one um, day i will get a website finished maybe um but yeah this was a blast really fun to dig in on the the various hairsprays and i'll be very curious to see what listeners sort of uh take away from watching both hairsprays too
0: oh beautiful <laughs> and as always friends you can find the show on twitter and instagram at the sunset prom you can find me on twitter instagram and tiktok at bj
1: calangelo and you can find me on twitter and instagram at Velocitraptor. Veloca underscore trap underscore tour.
0: And huge thank you as always to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use the song title as our theme song. Harmony, what band do you want people to check out this week that has, I don't know, some relation to hairspray, if any? I mean,
1: it's sort of related to hairspray. Um I, hey, guess what, everyone? You're getting another ska plug. Hell Deal yeah. with it. Uh, since Ska is, you know, everyone, ever, since people know that Ska loves its checkerboard designs, uh, the black and white of the checkerboard that Ska is well known for is all about, like, integration and racial harmony and unity, uh, I think that that's perfectly appropriate. And the person I am shouting out this week is Jer, best known probably for being the trombone player for We Are The Union or as ska Network. Uh, I believe at the time that this comes out, Jer's new album comes out tomorrow... And since I pre-ordered the vinyl, I've had it for, like, a month and have listened (laughs) to it extensively, and I'm a big fan. Uh, If you want to listen to something day of that this is released, the singles that are out are Cloud Chasers, Decolonize Your Mind, and Nobody Can Dull My Sparkle, all of which are fantastic. Jer is mixing a lot of different, like emo and modern alternative and really unique rhythms in this album uh it's fantastic front to back it's currently one of my favorites of the year so uh check that out as soon as it's available for you
0: beautiful yeah anything to promote Jare, i'm down with because Jare is the bomb.com yeah beautiful great. all right friends we will see you next week with a not musical because this is the end of may musical month but as always Thank you for listening, and save
1: that last dance for us. It's my birthday next week.
0: <laughs> it is your birthday. Okay, happy early birthday! I love you. Bye. Bye. Uh
2: oh, oh oh! Woke up today, feeling the
0: way I always do. Uh oh, oh oh! Hungry for something that.
2: of town, starts calling me down. It's like a message from high above. Oh, oh, oh. Pulling me out to the smiles and the streets that I love. Good morning, boy.
1: This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.